You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For October 3rd, 2018, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Once upon a time, our major investor-owned utilities decided how and where and what kind of electricity to buy with the approval of regulators, and that approach met our needs for over a century. But then renewables came along, which the public wanted for a variety of reasons, but the utilities who owned the conventional power plants didn't want competition from renewables and wouldn't buy them. So we started using various kinds of policy tools, like the Federal Public Utility Regulatory Policies Act, or PERPA, retail competition among utilities, and renewable portfolio standards to compel or otherwise encourage utilities to buy more renewable power. And those, too, worked for some degree for the better part of 40 years. But as climate change and other forms of environmental damage started to demand faster and larger energy transition actions, even those policy tools started to look inadequate. So in California, ever at the vanguard of energy transition and energy efficiency efforts in the U.S., local governments began adopting goals for reducing their greenhouse gas emissions, as well as strategies to achieve them, in the 1990s and 2000s. One of those strategies was known as Community Choice Aggregations, or CCAs, which California authorized in 2002. Created in the wake of the electricity crisis that sent electricity prices skyrocketing, caused blackouts across the state, and bankrupted the state's largest utility, PG&E, CCAs were a way for city officials to gain more control over their energy supplies and the prices paid by their residents. CCAs allow local governments to form a sort of buyer's club for electricity and purchase renewable electricity to supply their own needs. The power would still be physically delivered by the same local utility, which would also continue to maintain the wires and poles and perform functions like billing, but it would be up to each CCA to create its own governing board and set its own electricity rates. The first CCA launched in California was Marin Clean Energy in 2010. That was followed by Sonoma Clean Power in 2014, Lancaster Choice Energy in 2015, and both Clean Power SF and Peninsula Clean Energy in San Mateo County in 2016. And now, in 2018, CCAs have taken a major share of power procurement in California, which is growing rapidly. PG&E expects that 27% of the electricity requirements within its service area will be served by CCA programs this year. Southern California Edison, serving the Los Angeles area, expects the share of power requirements served by CCAs in its territory to jump from 3% this year to 20% next year. And that's not all. After a slow start outside of California, Massachusetts, Ohio, Illinois, New Jersey, and New York have also launched CCAs in recent years, although, as we shall see, many of them are quite different from the California versions. 
Naturally, this extremely rapid shift in power procurement has not been without its detractors. In California, the rapid growth of CCAs has been blamed for causing investment in renewable energy projects to fall off a cliff in 2017, and President Michael Picker of the California Public Utilities Commission, the state regulatory agency, has warned the California State Senate that the continuing defection of customers from investor-owned utilities to CCAs could further dent demand enough to discourage the utilities from investing in wind and solar plants altogether. And this sounds like a valid concern. According to the American Wind Energy Association, no new wind power plants were completed in California in the first half of this year. And according to the Solar Energy Industries Association, solar installations in the state dropped from 700 megawatts to 507 megawatts year over year in the first quarter of this year. But is that the whole story, or is there more to it? And what does the future of CCAs look like? Today's guest brings an expert view on these questions, having been closely involved in the development of California's community choice aggregation market since its launch eight years ago. Samuel Golding is the president of Community Choice Partners and is a technical consultant and political organizer who was previously the managing director of Local Power, Inc., the consultancy which created Community Choice. He knows the ins and outs of all these issues well and offers a fresh view on them that you may not have seen in most of the press coverage on CCAs. Then in the news segment of this episode, we'll talk about California's expanded program to deploy more storage on customer premises to address its increasingly problematic duck curve. We'll mark an important tipping point in European power markets, thanks to the carbon pricing increases we discussed in episode 76. We'll consider a potentially very significant boost to Europe's solar market, and we'll note an increase in Europe's official renewable target. But first, our conversation with Samuel Golding, recorded August 25th, 2018. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Samuel, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for having me, Chris. Maybe we should start with a bit of background on you. You're a technical consultant who's been working with various agencies and municipalities for the past eight years to help them understand what CCAs can do for them, with a particular focus on California, where CCAs have been growing rapidly. So how did you wind up in this particular niche? Well, I'm a political economist by training, and I also studied people power revolutions. I've been an energy consultant for a decade. Initially, I was at Kima, which is now DNVGL, and I was focused on distributed energy analytics and utility of the future issues. I then became aware of community choice through my political organizing work. And this was back in 2010, when Pacific Gas and Electric spent $50 million on a ballot initiative to try and make community choice and more broadly public power in California practically unworkable. And so at that time, I helped form the campaign that defeated that ballot proposition. And after that, I jumped to become the managing director of the consultancy that created community choice originally, local power, before branching out on my own independently. So over that period of time, I've been on the Sierra Club's Energy and Climate Committee for California, provide a lot of technical advice on community choice and distributed energy issues to a variety of environmental and social justice nonprofits. But I've also provided technical advisory services to the California Energy Commission, a few operational community choice agencies such as Sonoma Clean Power and East Bay Community Energy, and a variety of public utilities and some of the largest municipal governments in California that are investigating community choice, such as the city of San Diego, the San Francisco PUC, Long Beach Energy, and the county of Los Angeles. And I've also had clients 
in labor and various social and environmental justice nonprofits throughout the state. Yeah, that's interesting that you were part of that effort to defeat PG&E's bill, which was designed to kill the business case for CCAs. I remember that well because the first CCA launched in the U.S. was Marine Clean Energy in California back in 2010, which was coincident with that effort by PG&E. And I actually played a very small role in helping to launch Marine Clean Energy, and so I remember all that pretty well. And although CCAs are now spreading all over the country, California has remained at the vanguard of CCA formation in the U.S., There are now 16 CCAs across 18 counties in California, and they currently provide about 12% of the state's electricity. By the middle of next year, they're expected to serve 40% of utility customers in California, which is really a very significant share. So why are CCAs catching on like this in California? Yeah. Well, what we've seen in California has been kind of a gradual progression of agency formation over the last eight years or so with Marin launching in 2010, as you mentioned, and then Sonoma, Lancaster in 2014, 2015, and then two more agencies in 2016, and three or four more in 2017, and then this last year, a fairly rapid expansion. And we're on track to serve 30 to 40% of the utilities load by the middle of next year. Okay. Within those agencies, we've got 160 governments represented on all of the boards, and they have probably 170 government staff at this point. So we're seeing a lot of talent from renewable developers, distributed energy firms, data analytics companies, and even the investor-owned utilities joining these new agencies to help accelerate and evolve how California's community choice agencies operate. I think there's been a feedback loop there where as we've standardized our practices and really figured things out, more and more governments are comfortable with joining this movement and launching their own agencies. Ah, that makes sense. So similar to electric vehicles and to a lot of these other sort of newfangled things in energy transition, it takes a while for people to kind of watch and wait and see how the early adopters fare, and then they become emboldened to try it themselves. Something like that? Sure. Yeah, okay. So is there something qualitatively different about the way that agencies are structured in California as opposed to other states? Yes. In practice, what community choice means varies pretty widely depending on where you are in the country. So the first community choice legislation was passed in Massachusetts in 1997. Then it spread to Rhode Island, Ohio, Illinois, California in 2002, and then most recently New York and New Jersey in the past couple of years. Leaving aside the range of regulatory frameworks and market conditions that impact community choice agencies, at a more fundamental level, they differ because they've been designed to achieve different goals. So in most of the country, local governments have pursued community choice in an attempt to lower energy costs for their communities. And in some places, not very often, they've also tried to source power from less polluting sources. And that's a relatively straightforward goal. If you're a government, you essentially go to the market with a broker and you hire a retailer, an energy service company, to run your aggregation and provide power at a certain price point for a fixed period of time. And so there are plenty of energy supply companies that will bid to serve that form of community choice. But that's inherently a short-term agreement because the community choice customer base has the right to leave the program 
and there's a limit to how far out energy suppliers are willing to lock in prices. Engaging in longer-term planning, for example, isn't really the business of an energy retailer. It's all short-term. So as a consequence, kind of fairly superficial programs, and they can be short-term if the market conditions change over the course of that initial procurement contract. That form of community choice, and there's probably a thousand of them around the country, they don't affect what type of power plants get built. That's all taken care of separately through mechanisms overseen by the state or the federal agencies involved. California is very different. Our agencies have been designed to assume control of long-term power planning, not just short-term contracts or portfolio management. That's because our goals are to actually accelerate the construction of new renewable resources and also to advance the integration of distributed energy while our community choice agencies maintain competitive and relatively stable rates over the long term. And so achieving those goals requires a much more in-depth approach to how we design and operate the community choice agencies. Over time, these design practices have loosely coalesced into Community Choice 2.0 and 3.0 models, in which the Community Choice 2.0 refers to more advanced operational capabilities, and the Community Choice 3.0 refers to joint action, collaboration across individual community choice agencies, and it culminates in the formation of a super agency to provide shared services and coordination and planning and staff coordination across all the agencies at an advantageous economy of scale. And that's the sort of centralization of services and planning that we often see in the broader public power sector, where, for example, smaller municipal utilities will pool their resources and create an agency that provides them all with more sophisticated services than any one of them could afford on their own. And also a forum to assemble that deeper bench of expertise so that you can really, as a public power agency, start to understand all of the sources of risk that surround you and to plan more effectively in that context. Mm -hmm. So nationally, the formation of CCAs has really accelerated over the last couple of years, as it has in California. And in that sense, I think it's sort of a classic case of a very rapid advancement of an alternative to the old way of providing electricity. You know, one that even just a few years ago, very few people really expected to be such a big part of the market so quickly, which is very much the hallmark of disruptors in energy transition. I mean, it took seven years for the first CCAs to become operational nationally, but this year, at least eight new ones are expected to launch in this year alone. So why do you think the formation of CCAs is accelerating? Well, outside of California, it depends on the local market conditions often. Again, under the simpler form of community choice, a lot of them just seek price discounts, and those can be driven by short-term market dynamics. And so you can see expansions or contractions of community choice in states like Massachusetts or Illinois or Ohio and so on. Other states like New York have only recently approved community choice and are still to varying degrees figuring out the regulations around them. And so as that process solidifies, more and more governments are comfortable launching agencies. So typically the pattern you see is local political activism in one place and they have the will to establish the first agency. 
that forces the regulators and all the stakeholders to really think through how everything should be structured and then more pile onto that bandwagon as it starts to accelerate. Gotcha. All right. So I think it's pretty clear that CCAs are achieving their primary goal, which has been to buy more renewable power than the utilities would have bought on their own. CCAs across the country deliver electricity that's between 37 and 100% renewable, with a weighted average of 52% in 2017. By comparison, the three major California investor-owned utilities are IOUs, PG&E, Southern California Edison, and San Diego Gas and Electric. They only offer 32 to 44% renewable power. So clearly, CCAs CCAs are working in the sense that they're bringing more renewable power to the market than would otherwise be the case just if we stayed with the IOUs. But what are some of the other important characteristics that differentiate CCAs from conventional utilities? Well, at a high level, all CCAs are government agencies to varying degrees, again, depending on the state, that are designed to operate in competitive markets. And so that is supposed to allow us to achieve local policy goals while requiring government staff to seek competitive services from established and innovative energy companies. In California, again, we have a deeper design process and more institutional capacity as a consequence. And so we're really starting to change things up in exciting new ways. We have a startup culture often where For example, the East Bay Community Energy Agency and the Clean Power Alliance, which is Los Angeles and Ventura counties, those are both run out of kind of WeWork co-working spaces, which is pretty novel. Politically, CCAs are in California democratic and transparent and really an example of political localism applied to a critical sector of the economy. And that's pretty important to understand Each of the CCAs in California are governed by a board of elected officials, often under a joint powers agency that's chartered with the collective authorities of the city and county government municipalities. And so the elected officials that form those governing boards coming from those municipalities, by nature, they're kind of localists and they're realists and they're interested in practical applications and structural reforms that can address the range of challenges that municipalities face and are responsible for managing. We see that local political culture often reflected in how the agencies are designed at the governance level. So the board and the committee meetings are noticed and open to the public. In aggregate, the community choice industry in California participates or hosts hundreds of public workshops a year. And we even often establish community committees that meet regularly as part of the formal governance structure of the agency. So it's not just government staff involved here. It's the agencies are designed to really represent the horizontal, multi-sectoral networks of local institutions that in practice define governance at the municipal level. And so those networks could include councils of governments, business associations, community development organizations, labor unions, local philanthropies, environmental justice nonprofits, local banks, school districts, and so on and so forth. Basically, any stakeholder that has 
a voice in the energy future of their community and wants to become involved with how their local community choice agency is operating. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. The California Senate has passed a bill that will extend the state's program for behind-the-meter storage, known as the Self-Generation Incentive Program, or SGIP, by nearly 3 gigawatts. The SGIP program was due to expire at the end of 2019 and will now be extended by five years with funding to $800 million. Advocates say the program is needed to support the continued growth of the solar market because additional solar at this point will only exacerbate the state's duck curve without more storage to absorb excess solar production in the middle of the day and then use it as solar production falls off around sundown. The bill was previously approved by the State Assembly and now heads to the governor's desk. Item 2. The rising price of carbon emissions allowances in Europe's emissions trading system, which we discussed at length with Mark Lewis in episode 76, is already tilting the balance of electricity generation. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.